Thank you, Kelly. Great job. Take your Bibles and turn again to Acts chapter 16, if you would. Acts chapter 16. Every morning and every evening, the head of a Jewish household would pray, giving thanks that God had not created him a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. It seems to me hardly coincidental then that the first three people who are saved at Philippi come from those three despised categories. Paul himself later, writing under divine inspiration, wrote in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, let me bring you up to speed Immediately following the Macedonian vision of verse number 9, this band of missionaries sailed directly to the island of Samothrace and then on to Neopus, which is the port city of Philippi, some 10 miles inland. Verse 11 says, Therefore sailing from Troas... We ran a straight course to Thamothrace and the next day came to Neopos and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. Now it does seem that God favored their expedition for the phrase sail straight is a nautical term that means that the wind was at their back. In fact, the winds were so favorable that they sailed the 156 miles in two days. It took them five days on the return journey. Philippi was considered a colony of Rome. Somewhat in the same way that a Hawaii and Alaska are considered states of the United States. Although they are separated geographically from the mainland, people who live there live under the same laws and have the same privileges and are considered citizens of the United States. So it is with Philippi. Its inhabitants were considered citizens of Rome with all the same rights and privileges. And let me share with you these three individuals who are saved at Philippi. First, the salvation of a businesswoman. Verse number 13 says, And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women we met there. (coughs) When Paul and his companions arrived in Philippi, they discovered there was no synagogue. According to Jewish tradition, ten male heads of households were necessary for synagogue to be formed. If those requirements could not be met, then the faithful were to meet under the open skies near some body of water, a river, a lake, a seaside. So Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke 
went to the riverside on the Sabbath where they discovered a small group, all women. Now, Paul in his vision saw a man of Macedonia calling him for help. But when he got there, he found a small group of women gathered by the river. And one of those women became his first convert in Europe. Verse 14 says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. One of the women listening to Paul was a woman named Lydia, a rich, God-fearing Gentile woman from the city of Thyatira in Asia. Here's a woman who was holding on to every word that Paul spoke about Jesus. In fact, Scripture says that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So Lydia, the Gentile woman, becomes the first believer in Europe. And the opening of Lydia's heart resulted in the opening of her home. Her profession of faith resulted in her baptism and in her provision of hospitality, which is an outward evidence of this new reality of faith in her heart. The second demonstration we see is the salvation of a slave girl. The first thing that we want to know is her demonization. It says, now it happened as she went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaimed to us the way of salvation, and this she did for many days. So the next convert is a slave girl that Luke says has the spirit of divination, commonly referred to as demon possession. And Maybe a word of explanation is warranted here because there's still a, a lot of confusion about demon possession, with, especially within the ranks of Bible-believing Christians. Some maintain that even Christians can be possessed by a demon. Let me try to explain why I believe that cannot be true. Charles Ryrie defines the problem by saying, demon possession means a demon residing in a person, exerting direct control and influence over that person with certain derangement of mind and body. Demon possession is to be distinguished from demon influence and demon activity in relation to a person. The work of the demon in the latter is from the outside and in demon possession is from within. By this, a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon since he is already indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. However, A Christian can be the target of demonic activity to such an extent that he may give the appearance of demon possession. In Matthew chapter 8, 
Jesus describes two men at Gehara, Gadara, which he says were demon-possessed. But literally the word is demonized under the influence of one or more evil spirits. In reality, whenever we see that word demon possession, I think it's more accurate for us to use the word demonized. And Why do I make that distinction? It means that a person is under the influence of a demon like a drunk person is under the influence of alcohol. But you never say that an inebriated person is alcohol-possessed. So it is more technically correct to say that a person is demonized rather than demon-possessed. So one day, as Paul and Silas are on their way to the prayer meeting, a slave girl begins to follow them. It says that she was possessed with a spirit of divination. Today we would say that she was a, a medium or a psychic. She was possessed, demonized by a demon who used her as a channel to convey clairvoyant messages, interpreting the events of the day and predicting the future for people. She began to follow the missionary team, shouting, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. What she said was true as far as it went. She was saying that they are declaring the way of salvation. But in the original language, there is no definite article here. She is saying they were declaring a way of salvation, not the way. And even today, there are those, many, who are willing to say that the gospel is a way of salvation, but certainly want to stop and are unwilling to concede that it is the way, the only way of salvation. Now note her deliverance. It says finally in the last part of verse 18 that Paul has had enough. Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, not to the girl, but to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and he came out of her that very hour. It was not because she was wrong that she was silenced. It is almost as if Paul finally says, oh, for goodness sakes, this girl is driving me to distraction. I'm going to put a stop to this once and for all. And she was immediately delivered. And she was restored to her right mind. And we presume that she received Jesus Christ as her Savior. At the end of verse 18, Luke tells us, that the spirit came out of her. And at the beginning of verse 19, he adds that her master's hope of making money from her was gone. It is the same Greek word. It is a play on words. The The moment the spirit abandoned her was the same moment that her master's hope abandoned them of making a profit. What was without a doubt a tremendous blessing to her was not a tremendous blessing to her employer because she no longer had the ability to predict the future. Beginning in verse 19, 
we have the reaction of her masters. It says, but when her masters saw their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or to observe. The owners of the slave girl are angry at the loss of the source of revenue. But I want you to notice that when they get to the authorities, they appeal to racism. These Jews, these Jews have come and they are exceedingly troublesome to our city. So they're seeking to arouse the the prejudice of the people against these Jewish troublemakers. Apparently with little or no investigation into the matter, we're told in verse 22, then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So Paul and Silas were beaten with wooden rods and thrown into prison. I want you to try to imagine what it must have been like to be falsely accused of a crime, to be beaten without a trial, and to be thrown into prison. What happens when something terrible happens in your life? You're going along, doing your best to live right, when all of a sudden, out of the blue, you're bowled over by some terrible situation. Here were Paul and Silas, and all they were guilty of was preaching the gospel. But not everybody liked what they were doing. The masters of the slave girl got hit right in the pocketbook, and they didn't like it. This girl's masters cared very little or nothing about her. It was her powers that brought them profit. Paul and Silas are dragged before the magistrate on trumped-up charges. They're summarily sentenced and beaten. The officials who administer this beating are called lictors in the Latin. It's kind of curious because that's where we get our expression, getting your licks from. Not only were they beaten, they were thrown into the inner prison, we're told. And they're fastened by their feet in the stocks. Their rights have been violated and they could have easily been consumed by asking the question, why? Why? Why is this happening to us? Instead, we're told they're focused on prayer. It's interesting to consider that when we are treated unfairly, it may be that we are being given an important opportunity to be a witness for Christ. Third and finally, the salvation of a prison guard. It says in verse 25, but at midnight, Paul and 
Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. I don't know about you, but if this happened to me, I would not be in a good mood. I'm just going to tell you, I would not be in a good mood. So you have to admire Paul and Silas that they are not murmuring or complaining. They're praying and singing praises. Now, why are they singing? I think they're singing because they realize they're right in the center of God's will. In the original language, the word singing and the word praying are continuous action. They're continuing to pray and they're continuing to sing. Now, while we do not know any of the prisoners were saved or that any of the prisoners joined them in that effort, we do know that they are listening with great interest. It seems that the way Paul and Silas have responded in their cruel treatment had not gone unnoticed by the other prisoners. And then there's a startling earthquake. Suddenly the singing and the praying is interrupted in verse 26 because it says suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. When the earthquake occurred, the jailer rushes to, to check on the prisoners. The doors open. No one seems to be around. The jailer quickly comes to the conclusion that all the prisoners have escaped. And because the law says that he will receive whatever punishment the people who escaped would receive, he is ready to commit suicide. Can you imagine this jailer standing outside the prison thinking all was lost, that the prisoners had escaped, and then hearing a voice from inside the prison telling him not to harm himself. It's no wonder that he rushes into the room and fell at the feet of Paul and Silas. Verse 27 reveals, And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposed the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are here. And then he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Which leads to a sincere question. Because of what he had seen in Paul and Silas, the jailer asked the question, what must I do to be saved? Now some think that the jailer asked this question because he's afraid for his life. And that what he is really asking is, what must I do to be safe? I don't believe that's what he's asking for two reasons. First of all, The same Greek word is used when the demon-possessed woman was declaring, these men are telling you the way of salvation. And secondly, Paul's answer lets us know that he regarded it as a request for knowledge about eternal salvation. Which leads us to saving faith. Paul in his reply answers the question, 
about how the Roman jailer could be saved. Verse 31, he says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Salvation then was attained by placing his faith in Jesus as his Savior. If salvation is based on believing in Christ, how do you know then that you have truly believed? What is saving faith? True saving faith in Jesus Christ. Well, the answer is same today as it was in that Philippian prison 2,000 years ago. As I stated in a message that I preached a couple of weeks ago, true biblical faith involves three dimensions. Understanding, belief, and commitment. We must understand that Jesus gave his life as a payment for our sin. This implies repentance. We must know that he rose from the dead, that he opened the door of eternity to all those who would believe. If a person does not understand this, they may have faith, but it is a misplaced faith. Second, we must believe. It is one thing to know something. It is another thing to believe it. Sometimes people tell you that faith alone will save you. Unfortunately, James tells us that the demons in hell believe. Faith is something deeper than knowledge and deeper than just mere agreement or belief. True faith involves surrender and commitment to the truth that you say you believe. There's a very special scripture in, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, we find the image of Christ standing at the door and knocking, which is a wonderful picture, I believe, of how Christ comes into each of our lives. And in it, we can see the three elements of faith made clear. I hear the knock. That's knowledge. I go to the door and open it. That's belief. Or I go to the door, that's belief. I open it, that's commitment. It's obvious from what happens now that this soldier is a new man. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and his whole family were baptized now, when he had brought them into the house, he set food before them. He rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. The man who at least played a part in inflicting these wounds on these men now cleaned and dressed those wounds. The man who had been responsible for pushing these men into the innermost prison now took them into his own home. The man who had given them prison food at best to eat now sets before them the best that he had. I find it very interesting that the Lord picked three completely different kinds of people to form the nucleus of this new church in Philippi. 
Lydia did not start a church for the young, up-and-coming business leaders in Philippi. The slave girl did not join a church made up of former cult members. The jailer didn't join a military chapel with other Roman military men. They had to all learn to accept and love each other just like they were in the same church in Philippi. And God is still doing that all over the world, taking diverse people from all kinds of backgrounds who under no other circumstance might have anything to do with each other and putting them together in his church and making them into one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, that you're still saving people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of experiences in life, people that we might not necessarily look at and think, well, that's a good candidate to be saved. In fact, it might be the very last person we would think about as being a candidate for salvation, that you love everyone, and you give them an opportunity to know you personally. Father, it may be that there's someone in this place this morning, under the sound of my voice, who has never made a commitment to Christ. They've never recognized that they're a sinner. They've never accepted the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sin repented of their sin and accepted what he has done for them. I pray that they might understand that today. I pray that they might believe that enough to want to do something about it. I pray they would open the door for Jesus to come into their lives today and change them. Help them to understand that right here, in this place, they can secure forever their eternal destiny, knowing that they have accepted Jesus as their personal Savior. For each of us who are saved, Lord, help us as we look at our community. And sometimes we look at individuals and we lay them aside saying, well, it's really not worth it for us to try to reach out to them because they're impossible. But you specialize in the impossible. So help us to open our eyes to the opportunities that you've given us, even through this tremendous disaster in our community, to reach out to people, people who under ordinary circumstances might not be as open as they are right now. So, Lord, help us to capitalize on those times. Forgive us where we've failed you, Lord. Empower us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to have a brief invitation.